Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Today we're going to play another episode of Cavalcade of America, taking a look at uh, a love story through the course of war from uh, June the 4th of 1945 is... uh, The Lieutenants Come Home. Starring Marjorie Reynolds and Bob Bailey in The Lieutenants Come Home on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. We'd like to remind you of the necessity of taking care of your automobile. Only a thin film of paint protects the vital metal of your car, and for years, the standards of beauty and durability in automobile finishes have been DuPont Duco and Dulux. If you have an accident, a crumpled fender, a dented trunk, and the car finish is broken, the metal beneath becomes vulnerable to rust. To protect the irreplaceable metal of your car, DuPont Duco is still available. Look for the DuPont of authorized refinisher in your community and let him give your car the protection it needs. The DuPont Cavalcade presents The Lieutenants Come Home, starring Marjorie Reynolds as Army Nurse Phyllis Rowland and Bob Bailey as Carlton Rue of the United States Marine Corps. Roland, Lieutenant United States Army Nurse Corps. I've seen a lot of life and much of death. And if I've learned anything, I've, I've learned that each man and woman lives for a purpose. And that all else takes second place until that purpose is accomplished. For proof, I offer our story, Carlton Ruse and Mine. We'll start in the year 1942, a few weeks after Pearl Harbor. Some of the events that take place will sound as if they came from a well-plotted movie, but try not to think of that, for this is a true story. Well, by January of 1942, I was already a lieutenant in the Army Nurse Corps. In January also, I, I was able to come home to Lindenwald, New Jersey. And home meant, above all else, going to a dance with Carl. Phyllis, I've made up my mind. I've been wanting to tell you something for months, and now I'm going to tell it. Yes, Carlton? Well, uh, this may be a shock, but, uh, Phil, I'd rather go dancing with you than any girl I know. Hmm, not all? That's all. Well, then you admit dating other girls while I've been away. Uh, no, no, not exactly dating them, but, uh, I've been thinking about it. After all, when a girl goes marching off to war, she can't expect the boy she leaves behind to just sit. He has to have some fun. <laughs> you nut. <laughs> I, uh... I never got past the thinking stage, though, Phil. Didn't seem like a good idea. Just me, huh? Yep. And now, when we do have a chance to go dancing, we we spend the whole evening at a soda fountain drinking pop. <laughs> oh, hey, what a dog I am. She's a girl on furlough out of her fun. Come on, we can talk tomorrow or the next day. Oh, I, 
I'm afraid we can't, though, Carlton. No? I'm not on leave. Just a 24-hour pass. Oh. Oh, well, stay over for a couple of days and tell the Army you know me. Tell him I said it was okay. <laughs> the Army isn't easily impressed. What if you told him you knew me? Well, I'd probably be shot at sunrise. <laughs> They're pretty strict about such things as passes, huh? Very. Well, where do they get their high-handed stuff? Why, even I wouldn't have the effrontery to order you around. I wouldn't dare. And yet the Army, perfect strangers, step in and tells you when you can and can't see the guy Oh, um, Okay. We, um, we haven't much time for kidding. Yeah, no, we haven't. I'm, I'm to be shipped out when I get back. Shipped out? Overseas? Yes. You know, Phil, this is the darndest world a man ever saw. I've spent years trying to get up enough nerve to ask you to marry me. Years. Carlton. Now I finally reached the point where I'm sure my voice won't crack in the middle of the proposal of what happens. You're leaving for overseas. Oh, but you can I head for the Marines. What did you say, Carlton? I said you were leaving for overseas. No. What did you say before that? Oh, I'm heading for the Marines. Then I heard right. Yeah, they accepted me. I report to after tomorrow at Paris Island. You and the Marines. Oh, but Carlton, you, you could have at least hinted... Phil... Do you think I want to be just the boy you left behind? Carlton. Huh? Is it a breach of etiquette for a girl to ask a man to kiss her while she's sitting at a soda fountain? It is not a breach of etiquette. It's a pleasure. Turn her up here, Phil. Oh, thanks, Sergeant. Now, button that car. This is the Marine Corps. Not an artist, Swaree. Not an artist what, Sergeant? Swaree. I'm not so dumb. I know what a Swaree is. Guys go to them with long hair and dance with their backs showing. Yeah. Hey, who's the letter from, Frill? Does a Marine have to tell that to his Sergeant, too? No, I was just wondering. Why don't you go read your own mail? After 17 years in the service, it'd be a disgrace if somebody still writes to me. Uh, don't talk so impertinent to a sergeant, bud. Show me some respect. Hey, 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 what's this? By observing the looks of them four pages you dragged out of that envelope, I suspect somebody's been too gabby. Four pages cut to shreds. Darling, it says, I'm aboard a transport, and by adding one clue to another, I found out where we're going. Our destination is censored, 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 censored. Hope your ship there, too, and very soon, love Phyllis. How do you like that? I hope so, too, but where? Well, maybe you can find out if you was a little observant. Observant? What do you mean, observant? Postmark, Mac. Observe the postmark. Postmark? Postmark? Hey, this one says Canal Zone. Say, that means she's in the Pacific. Yeah, see what I've been getting at? For a guy to be a real Marine, he's got to observe and keep observing. Women talk a lot, but there's more real information observing a postmark. Yeah. Hey, uh, Sarge, could you tell me... I mean, well, you know how close-mouthed I am, so if you know where we're heading and could slip just a hint, it'd never go any further. I don't know nothing, son. Not any more than you do. But by observing these earth jungles we've been practicing in, I should figure we ain't heading for Europe. Oh, brother, I hope not. I hope we're headed for the Pacific. It's big, but it's not big enough so two people who know each other don't have at least a small chance of meeting. We both hoped with all our hearts that we would be together in the Pacific. And later I discovered Carlton had done the same as I had. Bought the smallest map he could find so the distances in the Pacific would look less great and our chances of meeting more real. 
My destination was Melbourne, Australia, the 4th General Hospital. None of the big Pacific battles had been fought up to that time, so our patients were mostly accident cases. Aviators had cracked up. Malaria, dysentery. And one day, the 13 nurses arrived from Corregidor. The same 13 about whom so much has been written and said, and, and I know all of it is true because I saw those 13. Their hunger, their raggedness, their pathetic expressions. That same night as we were trying to help them, I got a phone call and went into the chief nurse's office to answer it. Hello? Hey, Phil, is that you? Carlton. Oh, boy, does your voice sound good. Where are you? Well, no Marine has enough money to call from the United States. I'm here in Australia. We just arrived, Phil. And I got a 24-hour pass for tomorrow. And, boy, now we can be together and alone. Oh, but, Carlton, how did you know where to find me? Well, I, I've got a sergeant who observes things, addresses and so forth. Hey, where's your hospital? Oh, you can't come here. It's against regulations. I can't. You're engaged to oh, me. Oh, darling, I'm an officer, a second lieutenant. What's your rank? Private first class. <laughs> but in the Marines. Oh, Carlton, we still can't be seen together. They're strict here. Now, listen to me, Carlton. Oh, wait till I tell the Marines about the Army's attitude. Oh, Carlton, listen, you know as well as I do, officers aren't allowed to associate with enlisted men. Oh, wait till I tell the Marines, that's all. Oh, look, darling, I've got an idea. Oh, I knew that it's well, we won't be alone exactly, but we will be together. I'm sorry, sir. Your time is up. Oh, one moment, operator. Oh, Carl, we'll go to a picture show. We can sit next to each other. Well, that's something. Oh, listen to me so we don't miss on this. Be at the railroad station before 7.30. I'll be there, too, but don't come near me. Take the same car as I do, but don't sit next to me and don't even talk to me. Don't even look at me. And when I get off, you get off. Is, is that clear? I'm sorry, sir. Your time is up. Oh, maybe it is, operator, but we're going to try just once more. Just once more to be alone with each other. Hi, Phil. Hey, I'm, I'm here right behind you. Phil, remember me? Carl. Shh. Can't you even turn around? No. Oh, you second lieutenant. <laughs> hey, Phil, you know something? This is the first time I ever sat behind you, so I, I never observed what funny little ears you got. Be quiet. If anyone finds out we're together, both of us are in trouble. <laughs> Your neck's kind of skinny, too, Phil. And that old Sarge is right. you got to observe women from the front and back. Hey, Phil, has the back of your head always been square? Oh, Phil, hey, Phil, come back here. Don't change your seat. Well, how do you like that? Just another second lieutenant after all. We went to the movie, all right. Carlton followed me down the aisle and managed to get a seat next to mine. We, well, I, I don't quite know how to describe the feeling we had in being together that way. Maybe you'll understand if I, if I say it was like going into a store and trying on a fur coat you haven't the money to buy. There was the luxury of being together and the gloom of knowing we weren't really together at all. When the picture was over, the lights went up suddenly. Hey, look, a PFC out with a lieutenant. Yeah, that nurse has got a lot of nerve out with a private. Oh, boy, look at them, too. When MPS Show Patrol catches them, good night. The whole audience seemed to be directing their attention upon us, and we were glad to sneak out separately. A few days later, I got in touch with a girl in a suburb of Sandringham, and she allowed Carl and me to meet at her home. That was much more satisfactory. Carl, 
something else. No, just you. Oh, in this place, maybe. It's one of your friends who let us go on meeting here. This is the twelfth time. Four weeks, three times a week, twelve altogether. <laughs> You've been keeping track of them, too, huh? Sure. Not only that, Carl, but there's going to be a warm spot in my heart for the suburb of Sandingham as long as I live. No matter what happens? What can happen? Oh, anything. We're at war. Oh, don't talk that way, Carl. Don't even think such things. Phil, tell me something. You believe I'm good enough? Do you think I've got what it takes? Sure you have. You said yourself the Marines are the best trained fighting force in the world. I I don't mean to fight. I mean if I got what it takes to die. Oh, Carl, please. Oh, I'm I'm not afraid of dying. That's the last thing I'm be afraid of. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking more about you and me. About us? Yeah, Phil. You and I ought to get married when I come back to this town. Oh, that's better. <laughs> I'd ask you if I had the least idea how a man should act toward a wife who's a superior officer. Uh, does he dare say, uh, uh, get me my slippers, ma'am? The super's lousy, ma'am. <laughs> hey, that's kind of nice, you know it. Ma'am, how about leaning over and putting your head on the old boy's shoulder for just a minute? If we ever are together, Carl, I, uh, I have a feeling you know how to cope with a superior officer. <laughs> the day after our final meeting at Sandringham... The 1st Marine Division sailed away, Carlton with them. They landed on a little island I'd never heard of. It was called Guadalcanal. Short days later, the quiet, empty hospital wasn't quiet anymore. Nor was it empty. The wounded were coming in. They, they came by boat and by plane. We were busy, breathlessly busy, night and day. And, and as I walked from bed to bed through the long rows in the woods, I, I kept looking for someone I hoped wasn't there. Nurse. Yes? Will you, uh, will you turn around towards the light a little more, uh, face it, I mean? Face the light? Yeah. So I can observe something. Well, sure. You know, I, I've been trying to observe your looks for the two days I've been here, but I didn't get much of a chance. I don't get it. Well, I, uh, I observed your picture once. Yeah? A buddy of mine out on Guadalcanal. You're in Carlton's outfit. Carlton Rose. How did you know that? Well, Carlton told me about the first sergeant, how he influences his men to observe things. Oh. How is Carlton? Carl? Oh, he's going to be all right, nurse. Don't you worry. Oh, I know what... He's going to be all right. Well, sure, he stopped the machine gun slug with his leg. You knew that? No, I didn't. Oh. Oh, gee, I, I'm, I'm sorry to bust the news. I... Now, now, don't go all white, nurse. He wouldn't like that. No, he, he wouldn't. What happened? Well, he... He went in under heavy machine gun fire and brought out three wounded men. And then he went back for the fourth, and well, that's that's when he picked up the slug. But he brought the guy back anyhow. This kind of man wouldn't want a thrill to go white just hearing about something. No, I, I guess he wouldn't. Your friend's got plenty of moxie, lady. Does that mean he's got what it takes? It means not only has he got it, but he's using it. You are listening to Marjorie Reynolds as Phyllis Rowan, and Bob Bailey as Carlton Rue in The Lieutenant's Come Home. On the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Now, with the second part of our play, Lieutenant Phyllis Rowan continues with her story of Carlton Rue. 
Most of our story so far has told how Carl and I were constantly kept apart by things beyond our control. The rest of the story is why. The purposes we had to accomplish with our lives before anything else could be more than secondary. When Carlton came back to Australia a few months later, he wore not only the Purple Heart, but also the Silver Star, given for gallantry in action. And two stripes on his sleeve. He was a corporal. But even a corporal isn't a proper escort for a second lieutenant, according to uh, the best rules of military etiquette. So uh, it wasn't any easier for us to meet. One night, though, we, we did risk having dinner in public, and the next morning, Carl wished we hadn't, at least for a moment, because he was called to the office of his battalion commander. Corporal, I've got a report on you. Oh, on, on, on me, sir? Seems you did a good job on Guadalcanal. Oh, is that what the report's about, Major? Did you expect this office to get a report on some other of your activities? Oh, no, no, sir. Uh, Corporal Rue, uh, how do you think you'd like being an officer in the Marine Corps? An officer? Second lieutenant. Think it over. Don't answer right away. Oh, uh, no, sir, I won't answer right away. I mean, yes, sir, I, I'll, I'll think it over. Being an officer has its drawbacks, and responsibility is one of them. As an officer, you'll be taking care of your men. They'll come first. Yes, sir. Think it over. Major, sir? Well? I thought it over, sir. Already? Yes, sir, and I accept. I accept with pleasure, sir. I swear we have the worst luck of any two people I've ever known. We do. Well, look at this street. Not a single MP or shore patrol in sight. The day I become an officer, the first time in all these months I can be seen with you legitimately, and there's not a single... <laughs> well, what are you grinning at? I don't see anything funny. Now, Lieutenant. And don't call me Lieutenant. Hey, Phil, let's get married. What? <laughs> well, now what? Why the giggle? Oh, Carl, this is so sudden. Oh, no, no, you were you were grumbling about the MPs and shore patrols, and, and then without the least change of expression, you said, let's get married. Well, that's how much you're in my mind, Phil, stuffed in and around every thought I have. Well, we have to have permission from our commanding officers before we can marry, Carl. Well, mine's willing to give his permission. I talked to him this morning. Mine won't. How do you know? I asked. You asked? When? I didn't even suggest getting married until just this minute. I knew you would, though, Carl. Oh, well? Hey, you awfully hungry, Phil? Mm -hmm. Little. What? Well, if you're not, we'll go get married before dinner. It won't take long. We can eat afterwards. <laughs> oh, but where? How? What about the room? Well, we'll have the ceremony out at your friend's house. Then we'll both get a 72-hour pass and go somewhere on a honeymoon. Oh, and one thing more, darling. If you start giggling on the honeymoon, <laughs> I swear, so help me, I'll chuck you out the window of a moving train. <laughs> We went to Ballarat for our honeymoon. It was interrupted by a telegram. One of those disturbing telegrams that are so common to people in the service. Lieutenant Carlton Rue, report to headquarters at 0800 tomorrow, Tuesday. Urgent. We went back to Melbourne, my husband and I. We kissed goodbye in the presence of my chief nurse, who didn't bat an eye. Then, Carlton went away from me. September 1944, when the 1st Marine Divi Division invaded Peleliu, Carlton was in command of a platoon of heavy mortars. By mid-afternoon, 
He and his men had almost reached an enemy cave and were pinned down by Jap artillery. Darkness began to fall. It, it was time to look around for cover for the night. That was his job. He was an officer. What do you think about the cave, Lieutenant? Well, it looks good, Martin. We've been here an hour and a half, and there hasn't been a peep out of it. You think they're playing possum, Lieutenant? I remember once on Tulagi... Shut up, Wooly. Lieutenant's trying to listen. Well, we'll soon know if any champs are there. I'm going up and find out. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Maybe you ought to do that. Sir? Give me your carbon, somebody. Here, take my lieutenant. Okay, now head for cover, Wally. You're a duck without your carbon. Oh, I'll be okay, lieutenant. I, I said take cover. Yes, sir. Hey. Hey, the shooting stopped. Oh, brother, look at how quiet it is. Happens like that all the time, kid. What? All of a sudden, it's so quiet, you think your eardrums will split. Then it opens up again. You begin to feel better. Now, how about you shutting up, Frankie? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking too much. Okay, now, Frankie, you and Pigeon keep me covered from here. Wally, stay where you are, undercover. You leaving, Lieutenant? Yeah. Watch yourself. Good luck, sir. Good luck. Good luck. Hey, Frankie, where is he now? I can't see from behind this rock. The entrance to the cave. He's just going in. Jeez. Oh, that poor guy. Hey, the log shot's in the cave, and I got the lieutenant. Well, those dirty... There he is. He's coming out. They got him. They got him. Good. Look at him. Here we are, Lieutenant. Take it easy. Where'd they get you? In the belly. Hey, cartridge belt. Let me get it loose. Wally, where's Wally? Right here. Hey, yeah, come on, take it. Yeah. How many of them in the cave, Lieutenant? I, uh, four or five. Hey, they're coming out. Look. Yeah. It's on a grenade. It's a hey, grenade. Get, get out of the way. Get out of the way. No, no, Lieutenant. Here. Linda Moore? Sure. You're 
my wife, and we ought to go off somewhere. I'm sorry. Your time is up. Hey, uh, Phil, I'll be there in a couple of hours. Oh, Carl, don't make any plans. Let me make them. For tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next. I'm sorry, sir. Your time is up. Oh, no, it isn't, operator. His time is just beginning. And so is mine. Well, there it is, Carl's story and mine. The story of why we believe life has a purpose. And that regardless of our own desires, everything will take second place until that purpose is achieved. Even love. Carl's been recommended for the highest award our country can bestow upon a fighting man. He's spending some of his time in Lindenwall these days, and I'm on duty at Hilton General Hospital at Fort Dix. We're able to see each other once in a while now, but... Still, only on a 24-hour path. Our thanks to you, Marjorie Reynolds and Bob Bailey, and to all members of tonight's DuPont Cavalcade cast. Now, here is Jane Whitman. Dr. Cole Coolidge, assistant chemical director of the DuPont Company, recently had this to say about jobs after the war. I quote, There can be no victory in this war if its end brings widespread unemployment and want. Near the top of everyone's list is the hope for a high level of productive employment. There is ample ground for entertaining such hopes. Fifteen of our country's major manufacturing industries have been developed since 1870, and they have created about 15 million jobs that were never dreamed of before. On the basis of these figures, about one out of every four persons gainfully employed today owes his job in whole or in part to developments based on scientific research. In 1900, the horse and buggy business gave work to around a million persons. In a typical pre-war year, the automobile industry furnished employment, directly and indirectly, to more than six million persons. In 1942, nearly half of the DuPont Company's gross sales, 46% to be exact, consisted of products that either did not exist in 1928 or were not then manufactured in large commercial quantities. Possibly the best known of these new materials is nylon, which in 1928 was not a name nor even a remote idea. Three years before that, DuPont had initiated research resulting in neoprene, today's outstanding synthetic rubber, moisture-proof cellophane, synthetic resin enamel, high-tenacity rayon for tires, new plastics, polyvinyl alcohol, synthetic camphor, and synthetic urea for fertilizers are other notable products of this period of research. Unquote. With VE Day passed, all of us still have VJ Day to think of. It goes without saying that every facility of DuPont will continue to serve the Army and Navy until the unconditional surrender of Japan brings full victory. But when the war ends and it becomes possible to move ahead, DuPont is ready to spend many millions of dollars a year building and improving plants. And our post-war production will contribute in an important way to employment certainly to an all-time, peacetime high in DuPont employment. 
So far as DuPont is concerned, there will be more jobs after the war because there will be more DuPont better things for better living through chemistry. Next week, the DuPont Cavalcade looks back into the colorful days of the expanding American frontier. Into the days when justice was reached at the end of a six-gun, and wit and courage were more important than law books. And brings you the story of Roy Bean, who appointed himself judge and became the law west of the Pecos. Walter Brennan will be on hand as our star in the story of the man who was to become a legend, the law west of the Pecos. The music for tonight's DuPont Cavalcade was composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. Marjorie Reynolds is currently being seen in Paramount's Technicolor production, Bring On the Girls. Our Cavalcade play was written by Arthur Aaron. This is Frank Graham inviting you to listen next week to Walter Brennan in The Law, West of the Pecos. On the Cavalcade of America, brought to you by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Uh, this is just a great uh, episode. Probably one of the best Bob Bailey shows uh, I've heard on Cavalcade. And it brings home the type of sacrifice that was made, but also makes the love uh, between the... Uh, lieutenants feel very real and uh, i think that uh, there was, was really no inconsistency with the um way that the regulations seem to have been uh, flouted um but the people's uh, overall dedication i think a lot of these regulations were in place for a professional uh, army and they made sense in that context uh, in this case, uh, you had a, a guy with an already existing uh, relationship. And so they were willing to, you know, ignore or try to get around some regulations. But um, uh, there still was that necessary sacrifice and delay and uh, just an incredibly moving story. And so I hope you uh, enjoyed it. I do have a listener comment. A listener took a little bit of an issue with something I said on the show a couple weeks back uh, when we played the episode of Brave Men. Um, uh, comment from Charlene says, you do very good work and I appreciate all that you are doing, especially with the war. Now here's the but. You describe the death of Ernie Powell with the term passed away. That quote unquote polite euphemism is most inappropriate. Please don't refer to the deaths of Ernie Powell and the millions men and women who died because they fought and fought because they had no choices passed away. They died trying to make this a better world, and they at least deserve to be spared the polite euphemisms. I'm sorry if this sounds too mean, but I'm sick of the trivialization of what those young people did, and some are still doing today. Thank you for your time. I hope this makes a difference in how you look at war and what it really means. Well, Charlene, thanks so much uh, for your comments. Um, it doesn't change my uh, view of what war is and means because uh, i understood that i do apologize if my use that my use of that euphemism 
um, caused any uh, listeners to doubt that I understood that. And uh, I do apologize for that unfortunate use of that term, and I do do understand how that would not imply in that case. All right, well, that's all for today. Join us back here tomorrow for another episode of The War. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. This program is brought to you as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. And the opening theme music is provided by Ken Curlin, kencurlin.com. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.